0: I can do anything, with anything. He can heal any hurt, any suffering. Every cross, every care, every burden. Blind, He makes impossible possible when there's no other way. He makes my blackest sin white as snow. That's why we can say God can do anything with anything. He can heal any hurts, any suffering. 10,000, my soon-coming King, Jehovah, Messiah, the reason why I sing. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. My He can do anything with anything He can heal any hurt
1: I get the opportunity to look at some of the kids along around the room while sometimes things are happening, and it's always hilarious to me. I love it. And they're just, uh, they do great. They really do. Um, As parents, sometimes we get a little bit, you know, we can freak out a little bit, you know. But uh, they do a good job overall. I'm very pleased, and it's good to see children in the services at times. And, again, you know, I mean, obviously there are times they can get a little bit maybe out of hand, and as parents, we take care of that, and we train them up, but on the other hand, uh, they do well. They, they, it's just a pleasure to see the kids, and uh, I just sit sometimes and watch some of the crazy stuff they do, and I laugh. I just kind of crack up. Anyway, 2 Kings chapter 13, 2 Kings chapter 13, enjoy those years, parents. Enjoy those years. They can seem frustrating at times, and you know it can just seem overwhelming, probably for mom more than anyone but um, you know, it, it's it, this too will pass. You know, and then you'll look back, and if you have the proper walk and relationship, not only with the Lord but with your wife and family, uh, or your husband and family, you're you're going to wish you could have those days back again. And so, don't lose sight of it, and don't allow yourself to to become, you know, kind of boy. I can't wait till this is over. You know, because it will be over very soon. And more quickly than you'd imagine. And then you'll go back and say, boy, I sure wish we could have those days back again. So enjoy them while you got them and then just uh, savor them. 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13. Again, we're uh, I'm dealing with this uh, lessons from the grave. And um, I got away from it a little bit, obviously, and, and I just kind of come back to it the other day. I was early in the week. I, I This passage popped up in my mind, and I thought, man, I just need to dig into that, and sometimes um, certain things take a little more work than others, and this is one of those ones I thought, man, this might take a little work, and I don't know if I want to do that much work this week, you know, and uh, so, uh, you know, the, it did end up turning up fine, of course, and, uh, you know, it wasn't too bad, and, uh, you know, I just kind of prayed about it a little bit, and so anyway, um, we're going to go ahead and tackle this uh, uh, passage in second kings chapter 13 we're going to begin reading in verse 14 and read through verse 21 but we're going to be dealing with um elisha and uh, a passage that's quite interesting to say the least second kings chapter 13 verse 14 let's begin reading i'll read aloud you read silently with me it says now elisha was fallen sick of his sickness wherever he died Now, what it's saying is is that he's fallen sick. It's not that he's died yet, okay? So don't misunderstand what's going on here. It's just simply he's sick now, the illness or sickness that will ultimately end his life. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest smitten five or six times. Then hadst thou smitten Syria till thou hast consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. And Elisha died. And they buried him. The bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming of the year, coming in of the year. And it came to pass, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men. They cast the man into the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? So we have this man that 's dead being placed into the sepulchre of elisha, and all of a sudden he 's alive. Israel was divided at this point, and it was not quite a hundred years earlier that Rehoboam and Jeroboam became leaders of what would be called Judah and Israel. We know that you had david you had Saul and then David and then Solomon, and they had a united kingdom there and So you had what was called Israel, the 12 tribes, and they ruled over all of those tribes at one time, but some division came about following the death of Solomon, and Rehoboam and Jeroboam now become leaders of this nation, and it split. And so we have Judah and Israel. Judah would have some good kings along the way, and yet they would still have a number of bad kings. Israel, on the other hand, would exist in rebellion and disobedience and would continue in that from start to finish. There would be no good kings in Israel. Before his death, Elisha would provide a prophecy on behalf of Israel. Again, remember, it's a divided Israel. So this isn't all of Israel. This is the Israel that would have no good kings, the Israel that would live in rebellion and disobedience from the time of that division right on through till their Captivity in 721. And so now. We see that. Before his death Elijah provides a prophecy on behalf of Israel and its king. Which was Joash. And may I say too. That's extremely confusing in scripture. Because Joash. Is there's another Joash. For Judah. At the same time. And. And. If you would look up the name for the king of Israel, you're going to see that he's also called Jehoash. (laughs) J-E-H, like Jehovah and Oash. But then the short version of that is Joash. So it's very confusing as you read through this passage, if you're not careful, you start to think, well, now who in the world is he giving a prophecy to? Who in the world is receiving the prophecy? What's going on here? Well, again, you have two kings, and one of them is for Judah one of them is for Israel, and unfortunately, at times in the Bible, they're both named exactly the same, which creates tremendous confusion. Now, so he gives this prophecy, and um, we know the prophecy has to do with, you know, the Syrian army, and it has to do with the the bow and the arrow, and now the striking the arrows on the ground, and all of those things. Okay, so. Israel being at war with Syria, they need a deliverer. They need some help. And so Elisha tells the king of Israel to strike the ground with those arrows. He only strikes them three times. Now, again, understand he's already shot the, the arrow out the window. So he knows this has something to do with deliverance. And and, and Elisha makes it clear that now Syria can be consumed because you know this is the Lord that's going to do this work. Now strike these arrows on the ground. He strikes it three times, and the Bible says that the man of God is wroth with him. He's angry with him. He's upset with him. I mean, now isn't that's a problem already? Elisha is a wicked, sinful man then, because he should never show any anger as the man of God. He should never be upset with anybody in the church. He should never be upset with any leader. He should never lose his temper with anybody. He should never have feelings like a normal person because he's supposed to be perfect. How stupid is that for anyone to think that, including the church? Matter of fact, the Bible just makes it clear. I don't see any condemnation of this man's wrath. I don't see God saying, now, why would you be angry with the king? By the way, the man of God is supposed to get a little angry about some things. And, you know, when you do some things that are ungodly and unright, not right with God, he should be a little angry with you, maybe. Yeah. And instead of you being mad because he's mad, you ought to be glad he's mad. <laughs> you ought to say, praise God that preacher cares enough to be upset with me. That's, right. That's Wouldn't that be something if a church member actually said that instead of, that bad man, shame on you, preacher. You're supposed to be better than the rest of us. You should never get upset. Matter of fact, God says it, the man of God was upset with the, pre- the king. I think that's a good thing. I think it's good sometimes. I think, by the way, children, I think sometimes you ought to be happy when your parents are mad at you for doing something stupid. That's right. I, I think when you disobey them and your parents get upset about it, you ought to be glad they're upset. Instead of going, my parents are jerks. They get mad at me all the time. No, you ought to say, my parents are wonderful. They don't appreciate it when I, don't, I disobey them. I'm so glad that they're upset with me right now. Because if they weren't upset with me, that would mean they don't love me. See, we're we're we haven't even got to the message yet, but that's what you call real preaching, right there. <laughs>
0: Come on, that's good.
1: So anyway, we have this man here. We have this prophet now prophesying that, that the Lord would deliver them. But he instructs this man to strike the ground. He only strikes it three times, and as a result, the re- the response, or should I say, the outcome, will be that they will have three great victories. But they will not consume Syria as they could have if only he would have smote the ground five or six times. Well, it's on the heels of this prophecy then that we learn that Elisha has died now and he's been buried. Can you imagine the scene that day? Here's this group of broken-hearted family and friends proceeding to a grave site where they're going to place the body of their dearly beloved one in this grave in a a sepulcher, a tomb. And as they're making their way here in this procession, they spy a group of men. Some would say, well, that's obviously the Moabites. Uh, uh, They're at war with these people. Uh, uh, It could have been a group of renegades for all we know. But what we do know is they were very frightened and afraid, and as a result, they take the body of this dearly beloved one, and they quickly... Place it in this sepulcher. It says that they lowered him. If you read certain commentaries, they will tell you that the King James Bible was wrong and that the translators messed it all up because anybody with half a brain knows they didn't bury people then. They only put them in sepulchers. So they must have shoved him into a sepulcher. They couldn't have possibly lowered him into one. I don't know. I just kind of believe the Bible. But anyway... Yes. The fact is, is that this body now comes into contact with the bones of Elisha. And the Bible tells us that he stands on his feet. He's, he's alive. Now, I don't know. I'm trying to picture this. They, they quickly lower him down into the sepulcher. And all of a sudden, he pops to his feet. And he's got these grave clothes on, obviously. I mean, he's, he's, he's dead. And in those days, they would wrap them in these grave clothes and they'd put them in a sepulcher and there they stayed. They weren't in like a casket like today in that sense. They just lowered them. They, they put these grave clothes on them. So just like we see over there with um, um, Lazarus and his grave clothes, we see this man now being lowered here into the sepulcher, the sepulcher of Elisha and whether they even knew it was Elijah or not, we really don't know that for sure either. In such haste, they may have just gotten so desperate, just, just get rid of... we got to do something because our lives are in danger here. I mean, I, we don't want to see this body to, uh, desecrated. But on the other hand, he's dead. We're not. Let's stay alive. So down he goes, and all of a sudden, up he rises. Wow. I wonder if some of the family... Uh, saw what took place i wonder how many of them actually before they took off running for the hills saw him come alive what i do know is they knew afterwards for sure without a doubt and let me tell you something it had to make quite a stir around the community what was the purpose of this great miracle then you know why would god allow this to happen well, a number of people have weighed in on this question, and I want to share just a couple of positions, if you will, or a couple of reasons why some believe that it took place. Well, some have said it was to honor Elisha, who was a great and holy prophet of God, and I and I don't doubt this a bit. I don't doubt that. Um, the honor that he receives through this miracle was similar to that of Elijah's, who was translated. Remember, Elijah, he's picked up by chariots and taken to heaven without ever dying. And Elijah was honored in his departure while Elisha was honored uh, in his, excuse me, Elijah was honored in his departure and Elisha was honored in, um, I wrote it down wrong, so now I don't even know what he said, in his, um, let's see, how was it, in his death. And so, again, we prove that God extends honor as he pleases. Amen. God honors people that he chooses to honor. And in this case, he honored him. I mean, can you imagine? This man's lowered down into his sepulcher. He touches his bones and he lives. I think that drew pretty, quite a bit of attention to Elisha all yeah, over again. Okay, now again, I, to honor Elisha. Number two, to confirm Elijah's authority. I think there's real merit to this. I think it makes perfect sense. Consider, again, this miracle lends credibility to his doctrine. It lends credibility to his prophecies. Even as the miracles that were performed by the apostles in the early church gave them credibility, made people say, wow, obviously God's favor is in their life. God has empowered them, enabled them to do supernatural feats. Their doctrine and their beliefs, wow, there's something to it then. It lended credibility to them. And I think in the same way, this lends credibility to Elijah, to his prophecies, as well as the doctrines that he taught. Number three, to strengthen the faith of Joash, this king who had received this prophecy already from Elisha. This one who had smote the ground three times, who faced this great army, the Syrian army, to say, hey, listen, What he said was still true. He may not be here with us today, but what he said still makes sense and God's promise is still good. Number four, in the midst of all their struggles, this miracle would bring comfort to the people of God because with it, it would bring them hope of life after death, knowing that once again, the grave isn't the end of it all. Now, those are four, four positions that people have taken, obviously, in this area and why this took place. Um, they represent some of the more prevalent, the widely accepted views for the purpose of the miracle. Now, today and tonight, what I want to do, if you'll allow me, is I just want to share some lessons from the grave now. I want to look at it from a, I guess, practical standpoint Uh, inspirational standpoint, if you will. And so, what lessons do we learn from the grave tonight, then? Let me take just a few minutes and share some of those with you this this evening. Father, we come to you. Help us, Lord. We need you. And we thank you, Father, for the passage that you've given us. Help us to glean from it and to truly take from it what you'd have us. Again, Lord, we need you. Thank you for the testimonies we've already heard. And, Father, for the baptisms we'll see. But, Lord, tonight, encourage us from your blessed book, the Word of God. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So what lessons do we learn from the grave? Well, number one, I think we learn this. Even after our death, others can be affected by us. I I think we learn that. Even after our death, others can be affected by us. We have some examples of that in Scripture, don't we? We think about Abraham and Moses and Job. How many have been blessed and encouraged by the life of Job? I mean, David, Paul, the disciples... We think about those that are remembered in history even. I mean, think about men like George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Louis, Pas- Louis Pasteur. Think about Thomas Edison or Henry Ford or the Wright brothers. Think about Martin Luther King and the investment that these kind of men made in our culture, our world today. I mean, even though they're dead, even though their bodies are no longer on topside, the fact is they continue to make an impact in our world today. Their voice continues to speak. From the grave. What about men like D.L. Moody. Charles Spurgeon. Billy Sunday. Charles Finney. George Mueller. Men like George Whitfield, J. Frank Norris. Lee Robertson. Tom Malone. John R. Rice. Even Jack Hiles. Think about these men. Who are no longer with us. But their impact continues to impact another generation, not the one only that they themselves were part of, but now another generation and another generation and another generation, teaching us once again that even after our death, others can be affected by us. On the other hand, a life lived can leave a legacy of lasting harm as well. I think it's important to remember that. Even though their bodies lie cold and dormant in a grave today, we cannot dismiss the influence of such men as Charles Darwin or Karl Marx or Sigmund Freud. All of those are names that you have heard of in school or in our society somehow, some way. They continue to rule, if you will, because they have altered the thinking of society. They have provided and promoted philosophies that have been accepted and ultimately applied by masses of people. Whole nations of people, even though they're false teachings, even though they're unscriptural teachings. Their philosophies have invaded our public school systems, our businesses, our homes, and unfortunately, even our churches. And as a result of that, we just simply keep their graves open. Well, God help us to live our lives, your life and mine, in a way that when the days on earth are over, our days are over. Our voices and our influence will continue to ring loud and clear from the grave. We leave a lasting legacy. May God help us to do that. I mean, who will you impact in this life that will continue your legacy, that will continue to speak long after you're gone, whose life will be lived and whose life will be different for having come into contact with you? I mean, who will you influence that will continue your legacy legacy and perpetuate your philosophy of life? Who have you led to Christ? Who have you discipled? What investment have you made in the lives of others and in the ministry that will be remembered and appreciated for years to come? whose life will never be the same for having been impacted by you directly or possibly indirectly. See, how you live your life today matters tomorrow. It matters tomorrow. May God help us again to leave a legacy that will continue to cry out from the grave and bring life and hope to others long after we're gone. So we notice, first of all, what, that even our death, in our, after our death, others can be affected by us. Number two, this is probably, in my mind, the, the, the best and the most significant of all of them. We are reminded through this ordeal that it's the power of God and not that of a man by which these great and powerful miracles were performed. I mean, you think about Elijah's resume of miracles while he lived. I mean, he had the miracle of those vessels of oil. They never emptied. I mean, he, res- he was in on that resurrection of the Shunammite son. I mean, wow, that's an amazing thing, to raise someone from the dead. He healed Naaman, remember? Go dip seven times in, in, in the Jordan. I mean, this, he gets credit for these things. I mean, uh, think about that float, the axe head that had sunk in the bottom of that, 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 that river or lake, and he causes it to float. And then, of course, we have this resurrection of the man touched by his bones. It's amazing, isn't it? I think one of the reasons for this particular miracle seems to be that God can emphasize that it was nothing in the prophet himself which had given him the great power that he had through his lifetime. What I mean by that is sometimes we give a man credit for what is accomplished. Sometimes we look at a person like an Elijah or Elisha and we say, man, they were great men of God. They were so powerful. They they had such great power. No, they did not. They simply were conduits for God's power. It was always God's power. It was never man's power. See, there's no power in bones. And this miracle would only prove that The Israelites cannot rely upon or trust in a prophet or a mere man. But instead they must rely upon and trust in the almighty God of Elisha. It's the God of Elijah and it's the God of Elisha that you and I need. Not Elijah and not Elisha. It is not the miracles that they performed that we need. It's the God that performed the miracles. In Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6, turn there if you would please, I'll give you five minutes. (laughs) Actually, I won't and just pretend you found it before I start reading. (laughs) Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. It's by his spirit. It's by his power. Not man's might. Not man's power. His power. The God of heaven's power. John 15, 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. 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 See, the reality is that you and I are powerless and we are incapable of accomplishing anything. Even the most minor task is impossible to accomplish outside the power of God Himself. For without me, ye can do nothing. Ye can do nothing. Ye can do nothing. And you say, I do things all the time. I know. But all God needs to do is just choose to take away your breath, your health, your life, and you can do nothing. Nothing. See, this is the position that every believer needs to take concerning themselves. I can do nothing without him. Without him, I can do nothing. 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 nothing. And we may say we believe that, but we don't live like that. Let's be honest. I mean, how much do we pray? Without Him, I could do nothing. How much did you pray? Without Him, I could do nothing. Well, that's a good answer, and that's a biblical response. But my question is, are you really living it, not just saying it? Is it- just lip service or is it life service because if we really believe that i think we'd spend probably a little more time praying than we do a little more time including god than we do a little more time begging god to do something miraculous in our life and in the lives of our family and friends if we really believed without him i can do nothing but sadly enough i'm not convinced in my own life at times nor in the lives of others that we believe this the way we should God help us to truly understand this truth When that body was lowered down And touched the bones of Elisha Elijah was already dead and gone Someone says wow those bones had supernatural powers No they didn't It was just a mighty hand of God again Doing what he had been doing with Elisha all the time And all the way through his lifetime It was never Elisha It was always God And that's true in any one of our lives and every one of our lives. Paul and Barnabas were mere men. Men who God used in a miraculous way. And yet when opportunity came that they could have received glory, they deferred it to the one who deserved it. We see that over in the book of Acts chapter 14 as they sat there and a certain man at Lystra, the Bible says, impotent on his feet, being crippled from his mother's womb, who had never walked, was healed. And Paul the apostle basically says, "Rise and walk," and he does. And boy, I'll tell you, the people there begin to give him and his companions the credit for what took place. It was never Paul. It was never Barnabas. It was always God. And so Paul, instead of receiving it, instead of kind of going, hey, "Thank you," well, you know, I just you know, just doing the best I can for Jesus. <laughs> Well, let's go ahead. We're going to offer some sacrifices to you. Matter of fact, we're going to give you another name called Jupiter because you are such a God. And he says, no, I'm not a God. By the way, let me point you to the one who really did the work. May I say that it's so important that we understand without him, we can do nothing. And every time we get an opportunity, we need to point people to the one who gives us the ability to do anything and everything that we do. What do we learn? What lesson from the grave can we learn tonight? One, even after our death, others can be affected by us. And number two, that it's the power of God and not that of man by which these great and powerful miracles are performed. Number three, what can we learn? We learned that when the enemy shows up, that's when God shows off. Remember, the band of men show up at this point. I mean, these are just some lowly, normal men and women, brokenhearted from the loss of a loved one, family member, friend. Here they are making their way to a sepulcher where this body will be laid. Just leave us alone. Allow us to bury our loved one. Our hearts are breaking. We've had enough tragedy and enough trial and enough problems already. Please, leave us alone. Allow us to just do this thing. And yet as they make their way just to bury their loved one, their friend, their family member, this group of marauders show up. Their very lives are now threatened. Oh, great. Here we go again. All we wanted to do was bury our loved one. And now this. It would seem that once again, only trial, only trouble, only heartache. But when the enemy showed up, that's when God showed off. And may I say that when the enemy shows up in your life, get ready because God wants to show off. Now listen, we can at times allow the devil the victory in those times. We can turn our heart to, to mourning. We can turn our heart to self. We can take our eyes off of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can try to meander through the darkness. But if we will just remember that it is in the darkness we find Him, if we'll just remember that it's when the enemy really shows up and there's no means by which we can get the victory in and of ourselves, that's when God is more than anxious to step inside the box and say, I'm protecting and I'm providing and I'm going to make something miraculous happen. I think of... Elijah, when you talk about Elisha, you can hardly talk without talking about Elijah, too. But Elijah, we think about how he had prophesied the death of the king. And upon hearing the news, the king asked, What that fellow looked like that said I was going to die? It was Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, that he had said that man's going to die a death of illness. On his bed. He's not going to make it off that bed. And boy he said. Oh, no excuse me. Um, let me see something here. I might be getting my stories mixed up here. Nope that's it. I've got the right one. Because I got Elijah coming up. I told you. Get them all mixed up. Because they're so similar. It's crazy. So he says what's going on? He says who told you this prophecy? Who told you that I was going to die? And they said. Well, this guy, he was all dressed like this in all this hair and he's just kind of really in, I don't know, he's kind of weird looking. You're talking about Elijah. That Elijah guy. Man. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, and they answered, he was a hairy man and gird with a girdle of leather about his loins and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent unto him a captain of 50 and his 50 and he went up to him and behold he sat on the top of a hill and he spake unto him thou man of god the king hath said come down and elijah answered and said to the captain of 50 we're talking about 50 crack troops we're talking probably about these these are these are, would be considered the navy seals and here they are with their their captain and there's 50 of them here they are now this this group of men they're coming to take elijah to go see the king And they say, Elijah... He says, and, and they spake, Thou, man of God, the king has said, come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy 50. And you know what happened? When the enemy showed up, God showed off. Because the fire came down and consumed him and his 50 soldiers. Now, hold on. That's not where it ends. The king hears about this and gets really upset Send another captain and 50 more. So they head on out there. And they say, hey, the king wants to see you, buster. And you ain't going to defy the king. Hey, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. Sure enough, what happens? Fire comes down. I mean, the enemy shows up and God shows off. Bam. King says, you know what? That really ticks me off. Send 50 more in another captain. This guy's pretty, you know. You know what that was? He wasn't stupid. You know what he was? Prideful. He was arrogant. He wasn't about to be showed up by some stupid man of God. Some ignorant man of God. At least that's how he viewed it. So he sends 50 more. But this time. The king may have been totally consumed with pride and wrath and anger now. <laughs> but this captain was a very wise captain. In Second Kings chapter 1, verse 13, And he sent again a captain of, of the third fifty with his fifty, and the third captain of the fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah. Right, that's a pretty wise move. And he besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burned up the two captains and the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him. Be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. And that's something. Amen. See when the enemy shows up. God shows off. I think of Elisha himself. Syria again is at war with Israel and Elisha is revealing the military strategy of the Syrians to the king of Israel. I mean, the king of of Syria thinks there has to be a spy on the inside. And his men are going... I mean, he's probably killing people, honestly, because he can't figure out how Israel knows what he's up to. And finally, one of his men says, Whoa, 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 whoa. And he's probably trying to spare somebody's life, probably his own. (laughs) And he says, hold on, king. The fact is, it's that Elisha. It's like he's sitting in your bedroom listening to you make the plans up. He just knows what's going on. Therefore, chapter 6, verse 14 of 2 Kings sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servants said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? What he says is, what in the world are we going to do? There's this army out there. It's just you and me and an army. The enemy is outside on the hillside. What in the world are we going to do? That's a good question, actually. And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Amen. And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. What was he really saying? Lord, open his eyes that he can see what I see. Can I just say something, and I mean this in all humility. I'm not, do you realize that there might be somebody that sees something you don't? That's right. That's right. It may, not, it may be the man of God. Yes, it may be a close friend. Yes, it may be a wife or a husband. Sometimes people can see. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not so. We get so arrogant and prideful. We think we see and know everything. Is it possible that someone has been given a little bit of insight that you haven't yet? Could that be? In this case, it was the case. Now we have Gehazi with the man of God, and he says, Lord, would you open his eyes so he can see what I see? Because all he sees is the enemy. But what I do know, Lord, is when the enemy shows up, you show off. And so all of a sudden, the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. I think that's interesting, too. Notice he says, young man. Yep. You know, i got to believe that he says that on purpose. i got to believe that all for all the young men in this room... He's saying, you better listen to the man of God and you better listen to those that are older than you because they just might know a little more than you think you know. It's funny, isn't it? Just like I read that statement, uh, what, last uh, week at Father's Day about, um, oh my, who was he, the writer? Mark Twain, because he did Tom Sawyer, is that correct? That's all I can think is Tom Sawyer. I was going to call him Tom. But anyway, Mark Twain... When he said, you know, basically back, he said when he was, what, 14, he said he thought the, you know, the old man was crazy and didn't know anything. But then he said, it was amazing how much the old man learned in seven years. You know, so he thought he was ignorant. He said, he's the ignorant old man. Well, guess what? That ignorant old man learned a lot. He said, no, he didn't. He knew that all along, didn't he? It's just that, unfortunately, the young man thought he had it figured out. Well, anyway, notice he goes on to say here, And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. See, when the enemy shows up, God shows off. When it seems that our backs are against the wall and there's nowhere to turn, that's when God in all his magnificence and all his great power shows up and shows off. And I want to encourage you today to understand that God always wants to look good. And let me tell you, he's not going to allow things in our life that aren't going to allow him to look good. Now, listen, that can be a problem even because really in the reality is this. We want to look good and we want to feel good. But sometimes it's not until the enemy shows up, and that's an uncomfortable time. And it doesn't happen usually at the most convenient time. But that's when God is there to do His great work. And we learn that from this passage. Here they are, going to bury a loved one. They're just trying to have a funeral, and it's interrupted by the enemy. And yet God shows up. Can you imagine? I can't stand the enemy. This is ridiculous. They're, they're messing up all our plans. I'll throw his body in there. Let's just lower him down and get out of here before we all die. Hey, guys, where are you going? See, if it wouldn't have been for the enemy and the inconvenience, he'd have never got on his feet and lived. It may seem like it's the worst thing ever, but if we'll trust God with it, God will show off. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Nay, in all these things, you're more than conquerors through him that loved us. I love the passage here. It says, Hebrews 13:5 and 6: Let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with what, such things as you have. For he has said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may, watch it, it follows right on the heels of that verse. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Listen, don't we, we love to quote that? The Lord says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We go, praise God. Do you realize the next verse says, so that we may boldly say. The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Amazing when Brother Kavanaugh said a number of the decisions that were made had something to do with anxiety, fear, in our young people. My friend, there is no reason in the world why there ought to be fear in your heart and in your life all the time. As a believer... Why in the world are you so scared about what's going to happen to our economy? Why are you so scared about what's going to happen in the next election? Why in the world are you so scared about what's going to happen now that Britain's pulled out? What, what, what in the world are you doing to your children? That's right, Teaching them to live in fear and to bear anxiety that they should not have to deal with. Why would you talk about the difficult finances in your life around your kids? Why would you as a mother or father include your children in a conversation that says daddy or mommy is threatening to leave us? Why would you put fear in the heart of your children? And may I say yet, we do. And may I say it's all a result of the fact that although we'll say he'll never leave me or forsake me, we don't understand it so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. God does not give us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind, he says. Where's the fear coming from then? Why so much anxiety among the brethren? Why are we so worried and fretting and fearful all the time? Maybe it's because we do not have the reality of an indwelling presence of God in our life. Maybe we, we, we intellectually understand it, but we do not emotionally, spiritually embrace that. God help us. I'm just so afraid. I'm I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. Okay. I can understand you being concerned. But on the other hand, God's not big enough to meet your needs. On the other hand, you mean... That you're more worried about what man will do to you than what God can do for you and will? I mean, let's just get down to the nitty-gritty here. We allow man to rule us. and We allow our emotions to rule us. But remember, we're raising a generation that's going to have to stand against real persecution one day. And if they're learning to be afraid of a stupid economical problem, what in the world are they going to do when they're faced with a gun to their head That's or when they're told that they're going to, their children will die if they don't say no, that they're no longer a Christian? How are they going to stand then when we can't even stand when we're worried about what's going to happen to the European market and how's it going to affect America? I'm just saying this, we have to think this through a little bit. And what we learn, one of the things we learn, from this particular miracle is that when the enemy shows up God shows off let's trust him with our lives, our futures our families, our finances let's do that and when we are fearful let's go to God and confess that as sin admit to him I should not be afraid because you live in me why am I afraid of what man can do to me I'm wrong, Lord. I'm wrong for fearing. I need to trust. What time I am afraid, I will what? Trust in Him. Isn't that what the Bible teaches us to do? Preacher's not off his rocker. He's not crazy. Does he have it all figured out when it comes to this? Is he perfect in this area? Does he ever worry? Yeah, unfortunately, from time to time, I catch myself. But that doesn't make it right to worry, though. And it certainly don't feel good, does it? Let's trust Him today. Wow. Some lessons from the grave tonight. May God help us. Father, we come to You. Thank You again for some simple thoughts. And again, Lord...